Welcome to episode number three of the Doing Epic Stuff podcast. I'm your host, Mike Drohan, and together we'll explore the stories and journeys of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. A rogue wave can be described as an unusually large freak ocean wave that appears when you least expect it. My next guest, Tasmanian surfing pioneer, documentary filmmaker and author, Mr. Mick Lawrence, has spent a lifetime consciously courting danger and adventure to dance with nature itself. As life would have it, it was the rogue waves Mick encountered after his surfing career that threatened to eventually overwhelm him. I catch up with Mick to discuss his transportive, poignant and uplifting feature-length autobiotic, Rogue Waves, which I personally love and have shared with a number of family and friends. You can catch the trailer for Rogue Waves on Vimeo or the feature-length film on Vimeo On Demand. Without further ado, the Doing Epic Stuff podcast featuring Tasmanian surf pioneer Mick Lawrence. Do you want to, do you want to go back? We can go back and start wherever the story started, if you like. Well, if you don't mind, let's 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 no. uh, let's do that. Yeah. I'm more than happy to. It'd be great to kind of because I think for people listening to this, they they'll this will probably be their first touch with what rogue rogue waves is, and yes. even sure. understanding what a rogue wave is from your perspective would be a really good start. Yeah, I think. yeah. well, I uh, it, this all started about eleven year ago, and uh, I'd. Uh, I'd just walked away from surfing uh, not long before that. I'd, I'd, I started surfing here in Hobart in uh, 1964. And um, yeah, so in 2008, I, I walked away one day for no other reason than I had this ritual of every time I left the surf, I thanked Huey uh, for the experience. And I tried to treat, I learnt very early on in my surfing life, I, I tried to treat every surf as if it was going to be my last so whenever i left i paid my my thanks and, uh, and that way i i got a lot out of it i got more out of it than i probably should, you know, just by exploring that living moment sort of thing anyway I'd, I'd walked away from and a few months later i was sitting at home reading a book one day and i got this incredible pain in my stomach and within half an hour i was howling like a banshee and crawling around like a dog. Incredible pain. Oh, anyway, I'd, I'd split my, my aorta artery and uh, should, have, should have died. Six people a year, six people a year in Tasmania uh, have it. Uh, two die before they get to hospital. Two normally die within 24 hours. One of the two remaining, one will die within two weeks and the remain the sole survivor normally dies, you know, within a year. Uh, and uh, that happened to me. And uh, as a miracle, I came through. Uh, I don't know how. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, your, your odds weren't, weren't particularly great at that point, Mick. I <laughs> know. Uh, it wasn't looking good. It wasn't looking good. So, I, you know, I was in intensive care for it a few weeks and then they said look you've stabilized we're best bet to send you home you know you can die at home and i said yeah no that's cool i'm, I'm happy with that uh so was I, that I the came... outlook was it was it at, at the, the, from the medical professionals who were kind of looking at this thing going all right let let it let him kind of live this thing out as he can mm. and we'll, yeah mm. oh my god okay right yeah so that, that was that was my uh, prognosis um so i came home and um I had this, uh, I had this feeling that I was going to die. So 
I started writing stories uh, about my surfing life and my intent was to leave it to my son, Tim, as an explanation of how I'd wasted my life. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> during this period, uh, over some three months, and I was in a bad state, you know, I was on heavy, heavy medication, like 25 pills a day, and I was tripping. You know, uh, and I was on, uh, what are they called, hillbilly heroin, the one that's causing all the, all the problems now. Oxy, oxycodone or whatever it is. No, I was taking yep. about four of them a day. So I was writing all this stuff like, you know, Alice in Wonderland. You know, but all this stuff started to come out. And in the end, I had about um, 40 stories of recollection of my surfing days. And uh, strangely, this uh, guy uh, read a copy of one of the stories that circulated through, uh, I think, tracks at the time and rang the book publisher and suggested that would make a book. So anyway, we, we released this book and uh, I survived and my son, my son Tim was pretty stoked. Uh, he had a book dedicated to him. Uh, <laughs> Wait, what was the title of that book, uh, Mick? That is, is that the, the Surfing one? Surfing Inside. Surfing on the Inside, I call ah, it. Ah, Reflections of a Silver Grommet. Okay, gotcha. That's the one. That's the one. So, uh, yeah, so I wrote that. And, you know, out, out of that period of recovery from the aorta problem um, I fell into this you know, under the spell of the black dog and uh, went back to my GT and said look I'm going to bail on the pills that cause me grief mm. he said you can't do that you'll kill yourself and I said well this is in 11 so he said well if that's the way you feel maybe you should get your board back out of the shed and I said well I'm not going out backwards, so no, I'll do something else. So I went and bought a sea kayak <laughs> and stuff. And within a, a, a few months, I was paddling around home here across the Tasman Peninsula. I was doing about 100, 150k a week. Got myself incredibly fit, <laughs> fit of it for a long time. Um, and then, but I had this demon in my head. I couldn't talk about it, couldn't explain it to anyone. And uh, I realised that, you know, the dog had me. So then what I decided to do is uh, I thought I'd start exploring the southwest wilderness of Tasmania, but, you know, mountain lakes and river systems and coastal, you know, lots of harbours and stuff like that. So for the next five years, I went back to nature virtually, any opportunity I could, did it solo mainly, um, and um, probably paddled, you know, 14,000 kilometres over about 10 years uh, and got into the solitude thing. And over a period of four or five years, I started to drive this dog out of my head by immersing myself in the moment and, and getting involved in everything that was around me. And of course, I came up with all these questions. What's that? Why is it doing that? So I'd come back home after these trips and uh, research stuff. And so gradually I learned fill my head with positive stuff and once the dog realized that I wasn't paying him attention anymore he buggered off <laughs> and uh, so <laughs> that's how I personally got through this major rogue wave uh, you know the aortic dissection and after about five years of that turmoil um, I uh, I felt the best I'd felt 
I think, ever in my life. I, I could honestly say that I was probably 95% of my daylight hours, I was in a state of bliss content. So that was amazing. I mean, that was uh, uh, five years, having say order thing, and then five years of dealing with a dog, mate, that was the best bonus I ever got. You know, I thought, wow, how good is this? And that sort of got me back on track. Uh, and uh, then um, about three years ago, I was uh, four years ago, I was offered a job as a wilderness guide at Port Davy, which is at the very southwest extreme of Tasmania. Uh, mm-hmm. Total total wilderness area. You can only go by boat, walk, or fly in by a plane. So uh, this guide offered me a job. Uh, he ran a wilderness camp and a standing camp. It took ten people. Luxury place, you know. For, you know, no expense spared. It was great, and ran them around the boat for three days and showed them different places. Took them for walks on beaches and explained the environment and all that. Well, I'd spent five years down there, so I knew the place backwards, knew the mm. history, and that. So I fitted in like a glove. Lo and behold, uh, what I was doing down there is I'd have you know trips back to back with a week off in between. So I had my kayak down there. So I'd, in between, I'd just go kayaking on my, on my own. And uh, this one day I was. Um, on the beach and there was another camp going, but that was my time off. And there was a 90 year old guy from Northern New South Wales who'd climbed a mountain the day before. That was on his bucket list. He wanted to climb a mountain. <laughs> Legend. <laughs> now, I'd, I'd, I've, I've climbed this mountain a few times and climbing mountains is not good for my aorta. So I'm pretty restricted, but you know, I'm 73 and you know, I gave it a crack and geez, it wrecked me. How he got up there at 90 odd is just, <laughs> Wow, what a legend. So this guy had, the night before we met, he was at the camp and there was a copy of Surfing on the Inside and he climbed this mountain in the morning, afternoon, he was a bit worn out. So I sat down on the foreshore on the beach and read some of my book and said to the the guide, gee, I'd like to talk to this guy. He said, oh, well, he's in the area, I'll find him for you. He said, you're joking. He said, no, I'll find him. (laughs) <laughs> so the next morning, I'm on this isolated beach, hadn't seen anyone for four days, and up rocks this 90-year-old guy. He was about six foot four, incredibly fit man. Introduced himself, <laughs> told me what he'd done, and I said, mate, you're a legend. Sit down. <laughs> <I'm a> <laughs> <laughs> All I wanted to do was find out about him. <laughs> and look, no, 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 no. Look, put your foot on the brake. I've come to talk to you about, I read some of your book last night and I've just got to say, wow, what a fascinating life. When are you going to make the film? And I said, I would never thought about making it as a film. I just wrote it as a series of stories for my son. And he said, no, you should write a, you should make a film out of it. And of course, all this traveling in the wilderness, I had hundreds of hours of footage of places that not many people have ever been, let alone, you know, in contemporary time. Um, stunning footage and you know I've got a drone and you know GoPro and all that so everywhere I went I was I covered pretty extensively and I thought no, actually that's not a bad idea so I started in this trip and I was going to call it Parallel Worlds and it was it actually was a story about that it was a story about uh, the natural world I lived in and the human world I lived in and compared the two worlds and how those worlds interacted and affected my life. And uh, 
was uh, yeah, I got into that, and I'd been on that for about a year. Um, and I invited a friend of mine to help me, and he was a bio engineer and a musician, so he he agreed to do all that, and we'd almost finished it, had a few final scenes to do. And um, then my son Tim was tragically killed in a jet ski accident, and uh, I walked away. And I thought that was it. I mean, my original intent of this documentary was just to give it to Tim as a film to go along with the book, <laughs> but uh, it didn't work out that way. And of course, I'd lost my audience, so I thought, no, that's it. So I walked away from it. And about uh, three months later, uh George, my friend who was working on it with me, composed a bit of music to a sequence where I was talking about the black dog and uh, he blew me away. And uh, I used, he convinced me there and then that I should go back and start the story again. And uh, so that's what we did. And that took us uh, two years and we finished that October last year. Jeez, I'm, I must have been probably among some of the first uh, public to view it, I reckon. That probably wasn't mm. that far off the pace. <laughs> uh, in fact, you were the second. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. 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 Um, Mick, it must have been a, uh, just, just, I can only imagine like the, the gravity of what you were doing under the circumstances must have just been pressing uh, and so challenging to get through the the whole process of the video uh, or the movie. How how did you kind of keep on track with it? How did you come back to it when I'm sure you came across footage and topics that just were hard to to touch back into time and again? How, what what kept you on the path with it? Well, I walked I uh, I walked away from it three or four times, even you know after George convinced me and uh, I. You know, I kept having these doubts. I, you know, it's you know a bit of a cathartic experience to write a book about your experiences. Mm. To actually make a film about where the camera's turned on you, you know, it's normally the other way around. I was behind the camera, but now I was in front of it, filming myself. You know, that was, and I, you know, various stages through it. Because the story and how I told the story evolved. It was organic. It, it, it didn't, I didn't have a plan at the beginning. All I, it, and it, was, it came about by sitting down with George and uh, over a few VB cans over about eight sessions and just me rambling on, really. You know, and George would ask me questions and I'd drift down various pathways. And then, of course, you go back and, and then edit all that and find out what bits you want to use and what you don't and is it in context and so all of that and every time I went you know turned a different path I'd go nah don't do this is that is is that how the audio was was recorded for the film Mick yeah yeah (laughs) wow it's it's so beautifully done it feels like the to, to the audience, to, to me, it felt like the most polished, uh, considered, and I think I said poignant uh, description throughout the film. Like it really, the running commentary makes this thing. Uh, I love that you just churned it out over beers with your mate. <laughs> 
yeah. you get any more Australian than that? No, no, no. Sit around, knock off, knock off a few VBs, and you know you get more fluid as you go and more lucid. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, the other other thing, the other thing that does, of course, when you, when you start to relax uh, and talk about things, you know, after about 10, 15 minutes, you start to get into the into the real nitty gritty. And if you're talking to somebody who asks the right questions, they have the ability to open you up. And uh, George, my friend, did that. You know, a lot of the credit goes to George because uh, he kept me on track. Every time I wanted to go off track, he said, no, 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 no. And his, uh, his way of convincing me was to say, listen, what you've experienced, not many people do. Mm. And I would argue, well, they do, but the magnitude is different. And he said, well, that's my point. He said that if you can tell your story and explain how you got through these rogue waves, you know, at, at the very minimum, the four or five people that view this film get an inspiration to change their life, uh, reassess their life, uh, decide to move in a positive manner down a different track, well, I've won. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So and that's I, the way I look. And that was the way I kept on track. Mm. I, I, there, that is the, the power of, of, uh, of content is that it can, I believe, encourage people to actually change their actions or to move, as you said, move down a different track. And if that can be the outcome, if you've done something that actually physically motivates someone to, to, to do that, I think that's, a, that's an yeah. incredible thing. Um, yeah. Because one of the, one of the things in the, in the healing process, you know, if you want to talk, let's, let's talk about uh, how do you deal with rogue waves? Well, rogue waves come in all forms. It might be a health problem like most of us now. People say to me, well, what is, how do you feel? How's your life changed since this corona thing happened? And I said, well, it hasn't. Well, what you're feeling now, I've experienced for the last two and a half years, 24-7, you know. And if nothing else, it proves that, uh, you know, if you live in the moment, don't worry about tomorrow. I mean, the whole focus at the moment is on tomorrow. You know, what are, when are we going to lift restrictions? Well, forget all that. You know, we might never get to the stage where we can. Mm. What we have to do is learn to live with what we've got at the moment. And how do you do that? Well, you've got first thing you've got to do is you've got to work out whether you're a survivor or a victim. Now, being a victim is easy. You just roll over and give up, you know. Uh, being a survivor is a lot harder, but you survive. And that's what it's about. Get through each day. Worry about tomorrow tomorrow because it might be different. <laughs> I mean, the scene changes every minute. How do you, it, what are you going to do? You're going to waste the experience of enjoying this moment that you're in by worrying about things that you can't change anyway and may never happen. So it's this focusing on the moment. I think is the way to get through a rogue wave and the longer you get bashed and you're held down and you get a three wave hold down and you're going, oh, I'm going to die, but you pop to the surface again, only you get held down again. Sooner or later, you're going to come to the realization, well, I'm not dying. I'm actually living. And then the challenge is to embrace your demons. 
and part of getting through this rogue wave thing is the thing that scares you the most, you've got to make friends with it. You've got to make, it's like dealing with the dog. You know, once a dog realises you're not interested in it anymore, it buggers off, goes and haunts somebody else. And you've got to do the same, you know, getting through this thing. You know, mate, don't worry about tomorrow. I've got to get through today first. And <laughs> the best part of the day is when you go to bed. You know, wow, there's another one done. <laughs> I've seen the uh, the almost, I guess you could say, kind of crippling effect of this thing on, on people, especially I've kind of figured it more in, in terms of, I think I've seen it more towards sort of the older demographic and, and I've seen how it has really taken away what people believe that they had surety in and the obviously that how hard the traditional uh, media uh, channels are pushing this thing is, is helping to reaffirm those fears of the future and, and to make every day seem more scary than the last. And that uncertainty is, is pinging off more uncertainty and making people really kind of a bit frozen. But I think, yeah, if, if we can have, use this opportunity to explore positive outlets or things that we hadn't been exploring, absolutely. It, it's, it's there with, there's some silver linings to this thing. And uh, to your, to your other point, like, geez, I mean, hoping for the, for things to ease up and your life to go back to normal. I mean, that, that is probably, not the the best mentality to have at this point to get, to ride you through it, given what we don't know about what's going to happen next. I think if you can be present, if you can find things around you in your immediate to do, you're going to be a lot better off. I think at the end of the yeah. day, yeah. I think that, that that sort of thinking though, I, I I feel like being able to be in the present. I mean that that is a large part of, and I've only real I only consider myself like an avid but casual surfer, but surfing mm. is in and of itself this this connection to the to the present moment really isn't it and, and being able oh, to just be there you know embrace that ab- absolutely i mean um when i first started surfing people say you know you're surfing I said, yes yeah. so, or you know what sort of sports that and i said well it isn't <laughs> <laughs> it's not a sport I said, what do you mean it's not a sport I said, well think of it this way you know it's Unique's a bandied word, and it isn't unique because there are other forms of harnessing uh, natural energy forces. But in regards to surfing, it's obviously caused by friction. You know, wave, uh, wind blowing over over water surface for a long period. The harder it blows, the longer it blows, the bigger the waves, and that friction causes the waves to move through thousands of kilometres of ocean. You know? And it's only when the reverse happens that the friction from the bottom forces the wave up as it nears landfall. The fr- friction underneath causes the wave to ride and break. Now, I thought of waves immediately when I first rode my first wave. I, th- I came up with this idea that I was dancing with nature. And what had happened was that this wave, this en- unseen energy force was just moving through the water and its last gasp, a surfer paddles onto it, stands up and starts dancing with the wave. And it's a deaf dance for the wave. And that's an amazingly beautiful thing. You know, the spiritual context of that was the thing that drove me in surfing. You know, I'm going, 
wow, this is living in the moment. This is the, I mean, you take off in a wave, if you're thinking about the end of the wave, you've blown it. You've got to think about where you are right now, you know, because the end is like tomorrow. It might, you, know, you mightn't get there. You know? So you've got to be in this moment. So that's spiritual thing, the spiritual lesson I learned from surfing, which allowed me, ironically, to handle the rogue waves that are threw up on me. Mm, that's really interesting. I, I, this quote I took from the, the film that you uh, said, so <clears throat> the best dancers, whether tango or waltz, they just look good. They're connected to that wave. And I just, I love that so much. And it's, it's the same as whether it's surfing or whether it's playing table tennis, you know, if yeah. you, it's those guys that really are in the moment and flowing, there's, they yeah. look different. Uh, or, or the boxer who makes his opponent who's also at the elite level just look like he is a learner because one of them's in the moment and just lost in it and the other one is trying to box, you know? That's uh, it. That, that's the difference. One of the first uh, books on philosophy I ever bought was called The Inner Game of Tennis. And it was about uh, applying the technique of playing tennis to living in the moment. Huh. And uh, that that book opened up my mind. I mean, that turned me on to philosophy. I don't I don't understand philosophy, I, I, but I like um, I like exploring the inner side of things. You know, taking what a lot of people just take as you know, just on face value. There's more to it. That's where the truth lies. You know, in there, and mm. uh, just living in the moment. There's a guy. Uh, I've, my pronunciation is pretty horrible. I think his name is Eckhart Tolle. And uh, mm-hmm. I think he comes from Austria or somewhere like And uh, he's got a whole series of stuff on YouTube about living in the moment. Fantastic. Fantastic. You know, so in moments like these where you've got a lot of time and self-isolation, you know, looking up stuff like that you know, can open up all the answers that you're searching for. There's an incredible, we've got this incredible luxury of a conduit at any time we want it, as long as the internet doesn't go down to that sort (laughs) of stuff. And most of it's free. And I must admit, I'm I'm in the same boat. You know, if you go on these little journeys every, every so often, sort of looking into things like, uh, like that, gee, you can, you can learn a lot and you can just sit there and just consume as opposed to like a Netflix, which is generally speaking, you kind of your passive content, which is your chewing gum, a lot of that stuff. Yeah. But you can kind yeah. of, if you get into it, you can really kind of walk away from this, some of this stuff and feel somewhat enlightened, which is, which is amazing really. And I think we all have so much access to, it. and I wouldn't be surprised if, if those, that sort of content's getting a good run at the moment with people with a bit more time on their hands. Oh yeah. Well, you know, but let's not, Discount Netflix. I mean, God, <laughs> <laughs> you, you get lost. Of, you know, well, down, down here now we're 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 moving into the long dark, so this is going to be a horrible winter. But uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Netflix is a bit of a bit of a saviour because in in a day you can you know you can just get lost. You know. <laughs> You come back out the end, Corona. What's that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We were we were on lockdown. Really? Okay, good. Oh, give me more. <laughs> <laughs> and Mick, what did it feel like seeing your this movie, which you toiled over? What did it feel like turning up to the screening of that? And maybe just talk me through that because that must have been amazing to have worked on a personal project and then see it on the big screen, like you're in a bloody cinema and your movie's on the screen. 
Oh, yeah. Well, it's pretty surreal I, because yeah. by the time it, by the time I actually sat down to to watch it on the big screen, I'd probably seen it a thousand times. <laughs> <laughs> but but having said that, uh, you know, when you when you're putting something like this together, you seldom see it in total. Mm-hmm. You know, even, even when you're working through it, you're only working on a little segment, and sometimes you move from one segment down the line a bit, and then you come back. Depending on depending on your mood and where you are and footage and all that, you know, you might get an inspiration. Oh, I'll use it down here. Um, so you get to see it heaps, and I'm back the front. But um, even with the sound and everything, I, you know, the sound was only ever mixed the, like a, the week before. It was, it went on onto the screen, so I'd never heard it full bore. Uh, yep. You know. So, and again, and, the, sorry to interrupt, Mick, but the the sound for me is one of the the key parts of the whole body of work. It, it's just it's so beautifully done, and it pulls everything together so nicely. I think it would be incredible in a cinema. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, you know, on, on a on a nice screen on, a, on your laptop with a set of headphones cranked up, it's pretty amazing as well. Not quite mm. the same, you know, the, the big screen is, you know, and, and surround sound because it was a 5-1 mix, so it's pretty impactive. But, uh, yeah, I didn't know what to expect. I mean, the only reason it went, it went into a theatre, because my intent was, you know, after Tim died, I thought, oh, well, I'll just have a barbecue at home one night and show it to some of Tim's mates. That was my intent. But uh, what happened was that uh, a friend of mine who owned the State Picture Theatre here in Hobart, quite a boutique, you know, trendy independent theatre, I'd had uh, documentaries that I'd released before shown there and he heard on the grapevine that I was making this and contacted me and I said, oh, look, no, I don't think I want to show it, you know, publicly and explain why. Um, But he persisted. And convinced me that it was a good thing. And I thought, oh, well, give it a run. I think the capacity of the theatre was 250 people. And I thought, oh, I don't know, don't know how it'll go. You know, I might get 100. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, filled the 250 and had to open another theatre. <laughs> run it. <laughs> run it, Love in, it. For the premiere. And then it ran for four weeks after that. So... That's where it was going until, ironically, uh, a guy who I'd admired uh, but never met, uh, a guy called Jack McCoy, who you probably have heard of. Uh, Jack uh, saw uh, uh, an article that was run by uh, Stu Nettle at uh, at Swellnet, and Jack read it. And uh, about two days after the premiere, I get this phone call, and... uh, he says, uh, Mick Lawrence? And I said, uh, yeah. He said, uh, hi, my name's Jack. American drawl. I'm going, hi, Jack. He said, look, I just saw the trailer on Swellnet and I wanted to get in touch with you and find out how I can get to see this thing. Anyway, we, we went into a bit of a, bit of a talk and you know, very engaging man and very similar thought pattern to myself. So we rambled on for about three quarters of an hour and you know, he then let slip that he had filmmaking experience. And I said, oh, really? What sort of stuff do you make? He said, oh, you know, I made about 25 surf films. I said, what's your surname? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that <Anyway>. Jack. 
So I sent him a copy of the film and um, a week I thought, oh, well, that'll be the end of that. You know, he's a master filmmaker. <laughs> <laughs> he was, oh, geez, what's this guy? Uh, a week later, aloha, Mick, this is Jack. He said, and the conversation was very short. He said, my wife and I watched your film last night. You brought me to tears. He said, I have never in my life given any kudos to a surf filmmaker, but I'm taking my hat off to you and I'm going to do something for you. And I'm <laughs> that was a strange call. Um, <laughs> the next day, I get contacted by Jack's agent in Los Angeles who wants to distribute the thing on the streaming platforms globally. Wow. So that's, that's how it all happened, you know. Just from this guy, Jack. So I've had a few conversations with Jack, and and prior to this Corona thing happening, uh, we were going to have a screening at um, oh, one of the Central Coast of Oka Beach Picture Theatre, and my intent was that I was going to go up to that at screening and then drive up and spend a couple of days with Jack chewing the fat. <laughs> mm, that <laughs> sounds that's awesome. Never, yeah, to that point. To this point, that hasn't happened. But uh, once this rubbish is over, uh, that's one of the first things I'll do. That, that's uh, well. Firstly, I'm glad that you that you went down that path and and took this into the public sphere because I think it has a lot of value. Uh, well, I, it's not even whether I think I, it does or doesn't. I, I know for me it has, and I'm sure there's hmm. people well, have a similar that, mindset. The, so yeah. No, that's good. That's good enough for me right now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and any any uh, any tips for a would-be first-time filmmaker? Now you've obviously had a lot of experience working on film in the past, anyway. Correct? You you've done your own documentaries and this sort of thing. Oh uh, yeah, I've uh, I've made well probably I started making TV commercials uh, right. in 1980. That's where I cut my teeth. I knew nothing about it. I I got into it by default. Um, a friend asked if I wanted to help him sell, uh, try and get some business for a fit, uh, video production house. And huh. I did that and uh, suddenly got a lot of business in. <laughs> Didn't know anything about filmmaking. Um, but there were these two guys running it. So we formed a sort of partnership. And then one guy got an offer of directing in uh, New South Wales. He went, he went and did that. And the other guy said, oh, I'm not going to do it on my own. So I was left with him and my wife encouraged me to um, well, take it on. So I just subcontracted on camera and all that sort of stuff. Didn't know anything about it. Um, and then started doing it myself and then gradually started to learn the trade by watching and talking and mm -hmm. uh, gradually took over different aspects of it myself and then made about 300 odd TV commercials and then thought, you know, I'd cut my teeth on it, but, it's not the thing I wanted to do. I, I likened it to, I've been telling lies for 300 times. And <laughs> I think that like, sounds suspiciously like how I perceive my own career in marketing. <laughs> yeah, I thought, no, I'd like to tell stories. So I started making documentaries. And so I had to learn that whole process again. I, I was computer dyslexic, but bought myself a computer, taught myself how to edit did all that sort of stuff and then moved into making docos and yeah, made about 200 in the end, sold stuff to National yes. Geographic, all that sort of stuff. So yeah, I've made, I've had an amazing life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, can't believe it. I feel like you've done a lot of different things, Mick. I, th I feel like 
also the, the, this, uh, this current, the current global situation presents people with a real chance to upskill and maybe diversify their, their professional and explore new professions. Um, I know the governments in, this, in Australia is offering or is soon to be offering heavily subsidized online learning, which they've never done before. Um, yeah. So, you know, if, if you have a passion like that or even slightly interested in something like creating your own video, there's so many outlets to do that now. Oh, there are. Look, in the time that I've been in, for example, you know, in the early days, you know, I was shooting 16 mil film and then moved on to videotape and then, you know, reel to reel and all that sort of stuff. And then it's only now you can buy a laptop with a computer program and a $2,000 camera and a drone. And <laughs> you know, if you've got the ability to write and tell a story, you can be an individual who can make the whole thing. And if you've got a satellite dish, you can push it up onto a satellite and away it goes. You know, like, so the world's a whole lot different. But if you have a passion and the need to do it, the first thing you need to understand is, you know, everyone wants to be a rock star, <laughs> but there's only one Mick Jagger. Yeah. So that's, that's the first realisation. And if you want to get there, you've got to get there by putting in not expecting stuff out, you know. So, you know, a lot of my schools were honed by doing short clips on Vimeo and stuff like that or making stuff and spreading to my friends and learning what worked and what didn't, you know. I, I was, I think I was, in hindsight, I was, I've been always been a storyteller right from what, you know, as a kid, uh, but only because I fell into this situation and this technological age where it allowed me to sit down and now I can produce a story and show it to the world from, you know, a rock at the bottom of the world. You know, it's pretty amazing. Uh, it, so it is. You, and now you can do all that stuff. One of the problems I see is that there's an over-dependence upon qualifications and the bit of paper which says that you read the book that the teacher told you to read and you answered the right questions doesn't necessarily mean that you can be an expert or totally gifted in what you choose to do you know so mm. you know einstein and all these these people who were multi-skilled you know they, their their skills ranged over a whole range of science sciences uh this day and age they wouldn't get a job because they wouldn't be qualified enough mm. you know mm. and that's where we've gone this is this depending upon nonsense, you know, the fact that a bit of paper qualifies you to do stuff. Well, how about what you actually do? Yeah. Would that be yeah. a good place? <laughs> I, I think, think just, so. just about everyone knows that somebody who could or should be, let's say, like an amazing GP or surgeon, but didn't have the two points they needed on their end of year hmm. exam or whatever, but that you knew yeah. that they had the right demeanour you know, the, the, the human caring factor and all that stuff. And I, I think it is, it is a bit of a tragedy that the modern era has taken us totally towards this exclusive results focused uh, mm. process mm. to vet who's correct for what role. Uh, I think that's well, changing. What you, <laughs> how much do you learn by being right all the time? Not much. <laughs> <All right. laughs> You've got to stuff up to learn. You know, that's, what's, that's how you learn. Absolutely. Make a mistake. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I'd, certainly all, all my greatest uh, leaps in uh, personal development and professional have been from stuffing things up, I'm sure. Well, that's how I got to be 73. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. 
Uh, so Mick, let's let's change gears slightly. You've touched on yep. um, you've touched on the black dog depression a couple of times. I think it, it means so much to so many people, and it's it's such a it's a, a challenging thing to address, and it's subjective, and everyone has their own experience with it. I think one of the things you touched on in the movie is that you, you felt you couldn't talk about it, not even to your GP, right? Mm. And I think that's, I feel like this is a common theme, especially with men, is we have a real difficulty talking about these vulnerabilities. Um, why do you think this is? Why do you think that tends to be the case? Um, I can only speak from my own experience. And when I think back, I think it's because of the environment I was raised in. I mean, my grandfather and my father both uh, did wartime. Mm. My, my dad, uh, he met my mum here in Hobart towards the end of the Second World War. He'd been sunk three times before he was 21. Yes. Uh, then after he met mum, he, he, went, he was involved in the... Um, sea invasion of Japan. So he was in a flotilla of thousands of ships off the coast of Japan. And being a Marine, a British Marine, he was one night seconded uh, and put into this patrol boat thing, uh, along with heaps of others, and landed at a place called Hiroshima. (sighs) And uh, he was in the shore patrol of Hiroshima. And then he was moved to another place called Nagasaki. Uh, So that's what my dad went through. So growing up as a teenager, uh, you know, when you said, you know, this was bugging you and you're having a crap day, my old man would look at me and say, you don't know what crap is, you know. Mm, mm, It's a different universe of crap that he's experienced. Understand how you feel, but suck it up, mate. We're all in this together like we are now. You're all in this together, so don't, take it personal. Don't think that you're the only one hard done by, just man up. So I was raised in in that environment. Now my dad, when I was in my mid teens, he you know, he had he was attacked big time by the black dog given his war experiences. Mm. And he and mum broke up when I was twelve and uh when time I was on my mid teens he committed suicide. So you know, dad never, ever moaned or whinged, never, you know, never went there. So that's the environment I was brought up. In. So when I realised that I was under attack from this thing, I'm going, what's happening to me? Who do I talk to? And I probably, all I heard was my dad saying, suck it up. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things. Ironically, the reverse logic is what, my friend George, how my friend George convinced me to go ahead and make the documentary anyway by opening up and sharing, you know, bringing it to the fore, uh, getting people who don't want to talk about it to talk about it, uh, people who don't want to think about it to think about it. So, you know, that's how it all works. Uh, the world think- works in various ways. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that. Yeah, I'm interested because I guess thinking about surf culture as well, which is largely tribalistic, right? You kind of, it's very locals. (laughs) Okay, maybe exclusively. But 
it, it's very local, uh, local mentality and uh, people are protective of their spots. But there's also a, a brotherhood and sisterhood to f surfing, which is they look after each other and, you know, you know who your crew is and, and you know, there's certain safety and numbers in that regard. I guess I, I wonder, is the, are those surfing fraternities, are they inherently, I guess, and having tribes like that inherently a good thing or, or does, the, does the macho side, side of, of surfing and trying to ride the biggest waves and the ego of, of, of being a wicked surfer, does that get in the way of people being able to open up about their feelings and, and deal with them in these sort of uh, tribe heavy environments? Probably, most likely, yeah. In the main, I agree with you. Um, you know, surfing is very tribal. Uh, let's face it, you've got a, a stack of people competing for a limited resource. Uh, and, and how do you get around that? Well, you tend to uh, gravitate to smaller tribes and stamp out your own territory. Uh, so that's one side of it. The positive side of that, is, of course, is that the bonding and, you know, this camaraderie that comes from engaging in dealing with nature and taking every, everything that it has to throw at you. Uh, mm. you know, the road waves, you know, the heavy sessions, the closeouts. Uh, you bond more to your fellow surfer, your tribe member, if you're out there combating this thing together uh, and you get through it together. And sometimes one gets the other one through and sometimes it's the other way around. So this bonding uh, is very, very powerful. And, you know, it's part of our DNA. That's what we are. We are basically tribal. We don't... By nature, like, I don't know, well, I speak for myself, I'm pretty gregarious, but once the crowd gets over a certain number, I go through a change. Uh, and I think that's common for most people uh, because when, that, when the crowd increases, your risk from predators increases and they're the guys that steal your waves or, you know, punch mm -hmm. you out, just, you know, whatever. That's mm -hmm. the nasty. Or do crazy under. stuff and end up running over you. And yeah, shit. And, 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 <laughs> and that's the nasty underbelly of not just the tribal thing, but surfing in general. Because let's face it, you know, we all get along well as long as everyone's getting waves. You know. Yes. But when it when it when it comes down to the nitty gritty, or it gets too crowded, or somebody gets too greedy, you know, Tribes are tribes and you don't have to love one another all the time. And mm -hmm. the nasty mm -hmm. underbelly comes through. So that's, that's, that's the yin-yang. That's the bad side. I mean, here in Tassie, I've noticed over the years that things have become a lot more mellow with women becoming involved in surfing. The females bring a different, uh, a different vibe to the water. And, yes. uh, and not only that, but it's now, unlike when I started, where it was just... 18, 20 year old guys. Uh, now it's three generations, male, female. So you've got grandkids surfing with their grandparents, you know, mm. you know, five year old kids surfing with 70 year olds. I mean, that's pretty amazing. There's not many, not many activities in the world where you have that multi uh, uh, gender and age generational thing. So surfing in that form is, is really, really nice. And I've, I've seen here in Tasmania where 
it's got more mellow in the water, even though the crowds have increased. You know, people are willing to share the fact that, that they're out there doing, yeah, doing this wonderful thing because there are women, kids, men, boys. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's it, not just a pack of dogs. <laughs> no, it's not just a pack of dogs. But... You, you sort of got to counter that with basically surfing is a very hedonistic, self-centered, self-interested, egotistical fun fight. You know, mm. When it comes down to the nitty gritty, that's what it's like. And mm-hmm. also with some characters and others, you know, some of the most fantastic surfers and the worst guys to surf with, you know, they're <laughs> not humble or anything. They're just a pain in the butt. Yeah. Um, you know, and at the end of the day, when you've, reached the stage I have where I don't surf out in the water anymore and just surf on the inside of my head. Mm-hmm. I'm going, Oh, I don't know. Some of these guys are missing the point. <laughs> it, yeah, it feels so, like a wasted opportunity a little bit there. Like it's like, yeah, yeah. They're going to walk talents out and gifts, but not really kind of <laughs> the oh, full not, spectrum of enjoyment. Yeah. They haven't learned. They haven't learned from the, from the journey, you know, but, oh, you know, we can talk about that for ages. <laughs> <laughs> I think on the, on the plus side, when I was looking through um, Swellnet earlier today, just to, to check out the posting that had posted your, um, the Rogue Waves movie and was talking about it, off the back of that, and there's always plenty of people commenting on Swellnet, right? That people love to have a chat on that platform. Oh, yeah. I love it. It's great. Diversity mm. of, 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 of uh, people's thoughts is, is, yeah, it's good. Yeah, and I could, I could see that there was groups of surfers or people talking about mental health off the back of your uh, post there. And there was people suggesting uh, methods on getting groups of guys together to have a catch up every couple of weeks just to chat about stuff and, and other sort of very positive um, techniques to manage mental health in open discussion on these forums with guys who were no doubt your saltiest sea dogs who you'd see out in the surf. And, you know, if you mm. took their wave, they'd, they'd let you know about it. But yeah. your, what you have produced has, has been, has turned into a catalyst to open these discussions, which I think is a beautiful thing. And I, and I think you might not have even thought that could happen due to what you were doing. It probably wasn't the objective necessarily, but it's what has inherently happened because of the, the, the way you've approached the project and, and how open and honest it is. So I think that's a real positive from this thing. You know, that's, that's nice of you to say, I, you know, words like that make the whole journey worthwhile. So, um, it was a very difficult journey. Oh, whew, you know, but uh, I'm stronger for it. I'm stronger for it. Yeah. Um, you know, I've learned to deal with my grief. Uh, it's not easy. And it's with me all the time. Um, but those moments that I fall apart, I, I quite look look forward to now. I, I, I tend to see that as uh, the only opportunity I have in the present to connect with my son. So that's why I say it. Uh, and let's help uh, get me through it. Yeah, it's, it's working for me. It's working for my dog. <laughs> <laughs> what's what's the future looking like, Mick? What are you what are your plans? You got any plans to do more video action or more movies? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, um, I think you should, mate. I, I think you got a knack oh, for it. It's yeah. No, I, I, no, I'm not ready to stop. Um, 
No, I've been, I'm almost, once again, one of those almost at the stage of releasing. I've been doing a story on a, on a young guy who uh, lives up at Lauderdale, only five kilometres up the road. He was born with a, uh, a spinal uh, or skeletal defect and he had a 70, believe a 70 degree curvature of the spine. So his Holy. head was down from his knees. So of a consequence, all his internal organs were being compressed and couldn't develop. So at 12, they had to um, operate on him, put him in a halo and a, and a rack. And because of his conditions, he couldn't take painkillers. So this, this Oh my kid. goodness, you're kidding me. It's going through <laughs> this au naturel. My goodness. So he, he comes out of that, comes home and he's now, you know, stretched out and you know he's got a beautiful view of the world at about four foot three you know at a stretch and uh, he hears this commotion over his fence one day and he goes and have a, has a look and there's a football game going on Lord Bell football game so the next weekend he went over and because of his size every time they kicked the ball through for a goal at one end it went into the bushes and he was the only guy short enough to be able to get him to retrieve the ball <laughs> I so heard the story about this guy and what had happened was that the footy club being a community based club uh, saw this kid and said look we'd like to give you the opportunity to become a trainer you can't run very fast and all that we understand but we can teach you how to strap people up and physio and all of this so he is now the uh, he's 21 and he's four foot four and uh, he's the one of the youngest trainers in the AFL so I've been wow, doing he's doing AFL level. Yeah, yeah, he's the AFL level. So uh, I've been doing a story on him and was just, you know, his, his dad runs a windsurfing business and stuff like that. So he's involved in that and he, he deals with all these people. And one of his best friends is a guy in his mid-60s. <laughs> so what a character he, this guy is. I love him. Oh, this kid's amazing. So I'm doing a story on him and another young guy at Clifton Beach. Well, younger, he's about 35. He um, he snapped his neck diving into a swimming pool at a party at Margaret River over there on a surfing holiday. Came home, he's, you know, totally stuffed up, thought, you know, didn't want to live and all that. Anyway, his mates got around him and they got him a, uh, got him organised, got him a uh, motorised wheelchair, uh, got him a quad bike and a jet propelled electric surfboard <laughs> for his 30th birthday they took him to uh, cloud break uh, uh, rented out Tavarua all his mates he rocked up uh, he's, Stu Gibson he's pretty prominent a guy in the surf photography world he, uh, he's one of his best mates anyway they rocked around and picked him up from his home one day and worded his mum up to pack his bags and they said they were taking him surfing he didn't know where he's going so he <laughs> he rocks up at uh, Tavarua and there's all his mates there and they have this big party and the next night they go out and he rips into cloud breaks uh, so I'm there doing, <laughs> so I'm doing a story on uh, young Cameron yeah so the two will probably link into a story that I'm, I'm, I'm just sort of pursuing the aspect of the power of friendship yeah. so that's my current ongoing project and uh, yeah so uh, when I can get out of isolation and get the camera out and go and actually get close to somebody at the beach we'll we'll finish that off and away we go yeah. <laughs> please keep me abreast of your of your projects oh, Nick. oh no I certainly will yeah yeah mm. 
Well, I thank you so much for your time. I really, it is greatly appreciated. Uh, and it's just great it's having good. a chat to you. I find it's funny. You're so much just like the, it's, it's like the Mick I saw on, or heard on camera is the Mick on the phone. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And thanks for your time and your interest. And uh, I've really enjoyed the chat. I think one of the, one of the arts or skills in having a good conversation is to have people that, Oh, I think I lost you. Mick, you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. You can hear me? I'll be back. I'll be back. I got gotcha. yeah, yeah. Yeah. What I was saying is uh, I think the basis of any good discussion is having people who are both interesting and interested. And, uh, you know, our conversation today, both of us were in that sphere. So, yeah. I think good so. Luck yeah. Good luck. Thanks so much, Mick. I'll, uh, I'll let you know once I've, I've chopped this thing up and I've actually got it all ready to go and uh, you'll be the first to have a bit, of a, a bit of a look at it. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Doing Epic Stuff podcast. For the latest Doing Epic Stuff news and happenings, you can catch us on facebook.com slash doingepicstuff. And for inquiries, you can email me on mike at doingepicstuff.com.